Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden. Glad you could join me. How's your season going? Here, uh, this is being recorded as I am exploring Southeast California and Southwest Arizona. I'll have a full report upon return, but in the meanwhile, plenty to learn here. My hunting buddy, such as he is, Joe Augustine, will be joining me. He's also an author. And we're going to talk about some of his favorite public lands, bird hunts, uh, among other things. Uh, Joe's an athlete, uh, financial wizard, and uh, hopefully we'll learn something about places for all of us to go that are literally and figuratively open to hunt. Of course, we've got a lot more in store for you, including an Upland Nation puzzler question and a shot at that real bird bumper as the prize. And we'll talk about your travel plans for this coming season, uh, where you're planning to go and uh, uh, in what numbers. So uh, a lot to learn this week on the Upland Nation podcast from Joe Augustine, author and public lands hunter, and maybe a couple good questions from me. I got my fingers crossed. It's all made possible by Roughland Performance Kennels, Happy Jack Dog Care Products, Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, Pointer Shotguns from LegacySports.com, Dr. Tim's Natural Performance Dog Food, and MidValleyClays.com. They're your source for your next new shotgun. Speaking of Sage and Breaker, Com. Yeah, that's where you learn all about their products. Watch some of the videos there. They're very well produced, number one. Number two, very helpful and educational. Check them out. Whether you're looking to take care of your handguns, your long guns, your shotguns, it's all right there. One of their newest products is a firearm grease. Yeah, you need grease and oil in the right places. That's the key. Have them both on hand. It complements Sage and Breaker's CLP. That's the spray-on lighter liquid. The grease fills in the holes, basically, in a metal and allows a more smooth functioning, lubricating the firearm in places where you need a little bit more stickiness for your lubrication. Learn more about gun grease and CLP at sageandbreaker.com. And you can use some of those products on your brand new pointer shotgun. Learn all about the full line of pointer shotguns at Legacy Sports. Dot com. Just click on the Brands tab and then go to Pointer Shotguns. Everything from starter guns for your kids, yeah, fitted correctly, to your upgrade, whether it's an over and under or a semi-automatic or a target gun of one sort or another. They've got everything you might need in that regard. And that new coating not only looks cool and sets you apart from all the run-of-the-mill shooters out there, it also helps protect from corrosion. Learn all about the full line of shotguns at LegacySports.com. Well, I'm so looking forward to this because the last time I saw him, we were walking around in Sharptail country near Lewistown, Montana. 
Um, Joe Augustine, uh, you might know as the author of the book Feathered Tales, a bird hunter's Grand Slam Odyssey. Got some recent exposure by a friend of ours uh, in the writing world on Outdoor Life's pages. Um, so uh, I thought it would be a fun time for us to kind of get caught up and then uh, learn some of the things that Joe has learned over the years as a fanatic, passionate bird hunter. Don't hold it against him, but he's a setter owner too. Joe Augustine, welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. Thank you very much, Scott. Glad to be here and uh, nice to talk to you again. It is. You know, last time we, quote, hunted, unquote, together, um, I don't think you carried a shotgun. No, I actually carried my camera, which I prefer to carry now. I think it's harder to get good shots uh, with the camera than it is to kill birds. So uh, I actually spend more time probably with the camera as each year goes on you know it's funny and i've had some in, uh, interviews with photographers over the years because i have to provide photography for a lot of my magazine articles these days and and i'm always selfish about asking them you know how do you get such great shots because mine suck uh, and they said what well, you can't hunt and shoot yeah i mean you can't hunt and take photos it's that kind of shooting have you found the same thing no a lot of people say that i disagree with that i think if you have a so if you have dogs that'll hold the birds, yeah. you know, I point, I'm a pointing dog guy. I think that, you know, as especially early in the season, it gets incrementally harder later in the season as the birds get pressured. Yeah. But I always have a camera around my neck that's comfortable. I don't think of it. I have used ones before that were like neck weights, but <laughs> um, I have ones that are comfortable and I always try to, I pretty much the first two months of the season, I won't shoot a bird unless the dog's point and I get a picture of the point mm -hmm. that changes a little bit as you get into like November and everything and the weather and other factors come into play. But I think you actually can um, hunt and, and do the photography if your focus is on the photography. So you're going to, you know, there are going to be some birds that flush and you don't get shots at, but I think you can do both actually. And I, I kind of, I like doing both. You know, the, the biggest gripe I have, and I don't want to be too selfish about this, but you're, you know, you're a guy who has so much to offer all of us here. What do you do with your camera when you're going to shoot, when you're going to shoot a bird with a gun? Where, where's well, the I camera have a, go? I have the camera. If you think about how big game hunters carry binoculars, yeah. they carry them in chest pack type binocular holders. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My camera is just hanging from a camera strap in the middle of my chest where the binoculars would be, like if I was hunting sheep or mule deer or big game where I needed to glass. So what I do is I shoot the photos. And the camera just drops and hangs at a comfortable place. I walk up and flush the bird and mount the gun. There's no... I've never had interference with the camera. You know, I can't say never. Maybe a handful of times that I can mm -hmm. even think about. Mm -hmm. But it's it becomes such second nature because I really enjoy the photography aspect. Well, you know, it, you make it sound so simple, and your pictures are great, and and the experience is so much better when we're bringing home good pictures. I've got a couple things in that world that I'm going to start using next season. I promise everybody. Maybe you'll actually see something in a magazine someday. Joe Augustine, you have you've you've got such a, a fascinating background, and and you know we share a little bit of that in athletics and coaching and that part of it as well. But yeah, tell me a little bit about yourself that might be of of interest in and value to to the conversation i mean i grew up in a really small town in the finger lakes region in upstate new york a little town called geneva both my maternal and paternal families 
immigrated there from outside of Rome, Italy, and, and outside of uh, Palermo, Sicily, respectively. Blue-collar family. Um, was lucky to have a tremendous, you know, parents who just, you know, I still, if I could be half of the person that they were, my mom is still alive. My dad passed away 11 years ago. Um, just were incredible role models. And so my mom really emphasized education tremendously. And so uh, we were pushed pretty hard. And I was lucky enough. I think the only, like, born talent I've had was to be able to shoot a basketball, shoot a camera, shoot guns. And so I was lucky enough to be able to get a basketball scholarship to a good school, University of Rochester, played sports there, did my MBA uh, there, and then really was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, got a job the summer before I graduated with a, a, a merger and acquisition group on Wall Street. Thought, you know, this is kind of interesting, and then came down full-time, did that from the time I was like 22 or 23 till I was about, um, used to the math, 37. I hunted. I didn't have a dog during that time because I was working so much. Mm -hmm. and, but I still hunted a fair bit, dogless, fished a lot. I like to fish also. And then um, since uh, 2001, I've had my own businesses, and that just really allowed me to have the flexibility to do the kind of hunting and fishing that I want to do. So I live, I've lived in New York City since 1987. I'm a small-town guy. I'm fortunate enough to have a, a second house that I spend a lot of time in. It's 100 miles from the city, which is where I'm talking to you from now. Um, it's a rural area. I mean, I have to watch my dogs going out because we have uh, you know, coyotes, bears, and, and issues with them in the, in the area. But nothing, you know, it's, 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 it's a good mix. And I've been incredibly fortunate in my life, so I'm really grateful. Well, so am I for many of the same reasons. I forgot we shared a merger and acquisition uh, branch on our, our mutual family tree as well. Um, but let's talk about your dogs because you, I mean, all aspects of it, you're, you're a setter guy and they're beautiful dogs. And I think we might actually uh, have a mutual acquaintance in that world as well. How many dogs do you have these days? I have three dogs now. I have uh, two Berg brothers, setters, brothers, uh, majors, eight. Archie's just turned six. And then I have a, for 25 years, I've had in my string a dog from Bayview Setters, who's mm -hmm. uh, the, the founder of that, Dan Catalano, passed away in 2011, the same year my dad did. And I have an 11, a dog that'll be, she's 11 and a half, she'll be 12 in the spring, uh, named Molly. So I have three setters at, uh, at this point. What are you doing to prepare them for a hunt? Uh, conditioning and training, are you doing that all summer? How do you, what, what's your philosophy on all of that? Yeah, until about eight years ago, what I did was I, I, I'm a big physical fitness believer. Yeah. I train every day myself. And for a long time, I, I allowed the dogs to get, um, when we were done hunting in the winter, whether it's late January, February, I gave them like two or three months completely off. Wow. Uh, like a, trying to take the model from the sled dog guys. Mm -hmm. But I had some uh, events that were heat related and I tried to read as much as I could on that. And the takeaway that I got as a layman was that keeping the dogs in reasonably good condition um, all year round was the best thing. So what I do is I try to run them three to four days a week, you know, four miles ish, nothing crazy. And so I think that that's a pretty good balance. It's worked for me and I haven't had any more heat issues 
uh, and I wasn't doing anything irresponsible with the heat either. Um, it was early morning. Um, it just happened on a, on a humid day and I, I just started to read a lot more and it wasn't, the dog didn't even get heat stroke, but it clearly was affected by the heat. Mm-hmm. I got it to the vet right away and I'm like, I don't, I don't want to go to a level beyond this. Um, so I just try to run them. I've used a variety of different things over the years, spending a lot of time in New York City. I used to road my dogs, meaning I would take, I had four for a long time, put them on harnesses, hook the harnesses up to a bell and run with them in Central Park. The problem is the ambient temperature at sunrise has been over 70 degrees almost every day in the summer for the last several years. It yeah. didn't used to be like that in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. So I think it an old dog trainer in down south had always mentioned to me one time when I was in Southwest Georgia. You had the heat, the temperature, and the humidity up. If that's over 150, that's not a good thing. So I still abide by that rule, even if I'm up here where I spend most of the time in the summer. If I get up in the morning at sunrise and it's 75 degrees with 75% humidity, they get the day off because it's just not worth it. You know, I, I I cannot echo that enough. I freak out. I'm very wary of my dog's uh, uh, health. When the temperature goes above 50 degrees here in the desert, we start watching for those sort of things. So I'm glad to hear you learned that and not the hard way. Well, you know, uh, this is all leading up to, um, you know, the reason we got together. We're, we're both friends of Al Gadori, well-known. You, everybody who listens knows Al as a, a hunting guide in, in Montana. He's also a fishing guide, and maybe we'll get around to a sidebar on fly fishing while we're talking later, Joe. But in the meanwhile, um, you, you've when we met at the fairgrounds in Fergus County, Montana, uh, you were in the midst of uh, what I'll describe as uh, one of many epic bird hunting slash fly fishing trips you've made over the years. You had, I want to say, more than 100 pounds of dog food in your truck, and that's just one of the things you carry. That you know, Anybody who travels with dogs knows that's a long dang trip. Tell me h- how you prepare for a, for a longer road trip with dogs. Well, I think that you can't like assume you're going to remember everything. So a while ago, but I'm a list guy. I'm a list guy. Even from when I first started working in finance, I never left something that I could get done today for tomorrow. And I never left my office without having a list of things that I needed to be focused on the next day, not stuff that I could have done today, but stuff that needed to get done tomorrow. And so I have a spreadsheet. I have a spreadsheet for each of the three trips that I normally take every year, which is the longer Montana trip, the South Dakota trip, and then the, what I would call the uh, winter quail trip. And it literally lists all the dog stuff, all the human stuff, all the gun stuff, all the veterinary stuff and there's categories and I, you know, I have bags packed if you will, but I check that thoroughly every year. And even in the off season, I'll take days. I'll, I'll pack usually for Montana. I want to make sure that I've got most of my stuff ready and tested by um, Memorial day. Yeah. Amen Um, to that. I'll give you an example. (laughs) I have a, I have a dog to edge, a four dog collar from when I had four, four dog collars. And I 
always keep the receiver and a collar in my pack just in case if I'm in a hotel room, if somebody decides they want to get unruly after I've driven 950 miles. Um, I never have used the transmitter really on these dogs. I just take the collar out and they calm down. So I was looking in my pack the other night after, you know, being on the road for about 80 days this past hunting season, and somehow I'm missing the handheld receiver. So I had to call the company and order a a receiver. So you lose things and the like. And I think it's easier to look at that stuff in the off season than it is two days before you need to leave. And you realize nobody has the collar that you thought you had, but you lost. (laughs) You know, it's, it's so true. And, and, and anybody listening out there at findbirdhuntingspots.com, I've got my version of that list. And it, as people have told me in the past, the only thing not on that list is the semi truck you need to haul it in. So um, start with that one customize it i think it's downloadable as a yeah, as a, as a sp- excel spreadsheet so you can add your own stuff to it but check it out there um joe what's on that list that we might not have thought of um that's a good question i i i you know my the list is actually pretty practical i mean i think that what i literally will do though is i will figure out two of my guys have um, some sensitive stomach issues where they're on a prescription dog food. It's nothing. They had mm-hmm. pancreatitis and they're on a low fat dog food. Yeah. So I have all that like calculated to the amount that I need and then I top it off. Yeah. Um, I don't think that there's anything, you know, incredibly unusual on a list really. I mean, I bring a blender oh. so I can make, uh, you know, some healthy food. Um, I, oh, sometimes I thought bring, you were going to say margaritas. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not, I'm not a real, anybody that knows me knows I'm not a real party guy. Um, so we bring that, I bring a coffee maker. I do bring a, a rice cooker and some cooking utensils because of the other thing, similar to the, you can't do photography and shoot birds. It's the, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I have to eat poorly. I don't agree with that Yeah. because yeah. I think you can go and actually, you know, eat reasonably healthy. Look, I go out and have a burger. I'll go out and have ribs i enjoy the local cuisine but i don't want to eat that every night and so i i try to bring some stuff i pre-cook a lot of meals Mm. that's also Mm -hmm. on the list because when you're driving out to these places it's uh it's very helpful i'll give you one thing going back to heat yeah two years ago driving out air conditioning on the truck incredibly hot day i had a dog get close to overheating in his kennel in the SUV that I'm in that was air conditioned. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why he was facing the sun. I got out, I reloaded the car, I put him next to me, blasted the air conditioning on him. So what I did this year, what's on that list, I always have cooling vests on yeah, that list. Yeah. This year there were two sets of cooling vests. So what I did was I put the cooling vests on ice three days. It takes me about three days to get to Montana, put them on ice. And then at about noon, I took all three dogs in the truck and put cooling vests on them till three. Then at three, we stopped again and I swapped out the cooling vests they had for cooling vest number two that were in the cooler, put those on. So they were in a cooling vest from noon to six when the sun started to recede a little bit. And even with the air conditioning on, uh, the dogs can, can overheat. Oh, no, absolutely. In fact, we joke about it around here. My wife's SUV, the current one, does not have air conditioning vents in the back where she puts her dog. Now, right. it, and everybody else had one. So uh, yeah. all those things come in handy. And boy, those vests work. I, I can testify to that. They're I, wonderful. They're, I'm they're glad really to hear wonderful. that. They're 
really wonderful products. And they're not yeah. expensive either. I mean, no. you can pick them up pretty reasonable. And you can actually improvise a lot of times. I've asked people over the uh, last few months uh, about dogs and kennels, and you can do stuff with the the bedding in a kennel of various sorts. You can improvise or you can buy this stuff. And there are versions that you can put in the freezer, put in the, in the refrigerator, and then put them underneath your dog in the kennel as well. So that's a great tip. The, I'll give you one. And I, I swear by this one, I carry a, uh, a peat shoe dryer everywhere. Uh, oh, yeah, I have a portable one yeah. that's been in my yep. kit for 20 years. It's, yeah. it's indispensable, really, because, yeah. you you know, you inevitably get wet. Yeah, even if you don't, it's the sweat. You know, I, I wrote a piece yeah. years ago, your, your feet sweat uh, a quart and a half a day yuck (laughs) hey you're listening to the upland nation podcast i'm scott linden that is joe augustine hunting slash photography partner uh athlete author of the book feathered tales a bird hunters grand slam odyssey uh eventually we'll be talking about public access and some of your favorite public land hunts in fact why don't we just jump in finally joe i know everybody thank you for your tolerance on all of this other stuff but joe if you had to nail it down to you know a few places to go and why what would be at the top of your public lands access hunting uh list yeah i think you have to say i was thinking about this because i i know from the article ted wrote in outdoor life um, people people want like specific answers but i think it depends on what you are looking for yep if you just were talking about bird hunting I don't bird hunt to bird hunt. I bird hunt for like beauty and I want to see pretty surroundings. So I'll give you an example. I love Montana because even if they outlawed hunting, I would still go out there during the time I go out there because I love to fish. I love to wake up in the morning and just look at those mountains. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but it just, it's just really special. And um, so there's a lot of public land out there. There's a lot of public land in the whole state. It's a huge state. It takes a day to drive across. So I tend to be spend a lot of time in Lewistown, um, it's geographic center. To me, the places in Montana that have trout are all beautiful. When you start to morph towards the eastern part of the state, there's a lot of birds, but that doesn't do it for me as much as the mountainous parts do. But that's my preference. Um, you- if you go ahead you know you're you're not alone you know when i serve in fact we're going to talk about my annual upland index survey in in the second half of the podcast but if you ask most folks who are beyond the beginner stage in the bird hunting their bird hunting career uh, number one the reason they go is to watch their dogs number two it's to be in beautiful places right and i think that the other place on the public land side of that is is the the whole sort of space from the texas new mexico border over to the arizona california border that's mm-hmm. all beautiful in mm-hmm. there and the 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 quail numbers and the pressure have not been as high and so i haven't been there in a few years but those are really special places being in the desert in january and february just being able to watch the sunsets being able to just look at all the different landscapes that are presented to you and usually it's it's pretty good bird hunting now, if you just say in a normalized year, this was not a normalized year. All I want to do is go eat, sleep, and shoot birds. I would say you'd be hard-pressed in a normal year to uh, not just go to South Dakota. Yeah. Because I think if you're willing to walk, 
and you have you need some dog power because the area is big. Um, it presents. There's a reason that dog trainers go from down south up to the Dakotas and then even north into Canada. That mm-hmm. big open prairie is a bird hunter's dream. I can't um, argue that at all. I, in fact, that is exactly the way I described it. If you had to go one place, that would be the place. Now, narrow it down a little bit for us. I don't want the latitude and longitude, but if you're going to go to South Dakota, um, there's there's really two bird seasons in South Dakota. There's sharp tail season and there's everything else. Uh, if you're going for pheasants, and you do, I I think that's what you're doing out there. Where are you going? Well, what I do is I like to hunt late. See, I love prairie chickens. Yeah, yeah. Pinnated, pinnated grouse. I mean, sharp tails. Oftentimes, the dogs will point a covey, and there'll be uh, sharp tails and prairie chickens. Yeah, and the same yeah. thing. I've even shot birds that I've given to people that were hybrids. Oh. And so I have typically gone out there the two weeks prior to Thanksgiving. Got a cheap hotel room in Pier. For a while, I would spend a week in Pier and a week a little bit east of Pier on some private ground, Mm -hmm. but that um, opportunity is not there anymore. And so I've been spending the last several years, a couple weeks in Pier, and just using that as a base and driving, you know, reasonable distance. The problem out there during November is you're in the middle of a deer rut, and about three or four years ago, on a day that everybody needed a break, including myself, coming out of pier going east, I hit a, a mule deer with my truck, and it was not a, not a good deal. But no. um, So at night, when you go, if you're going to hunt the golden hour, it's dark by the time you get back to the truck. you got to kind of creep back to pier because there's deer all over those highways in any direction. Yeah, good, good advice. Um, while you're out there, um, you're taking advantage of, of – the, the more obvious public ground like the national grasslands but how much hunting do you do on say um their walk-in program it depends some years it's going to be i mean i mean for the most part the reason i like the grasslands is you're never going to be in a situation where you can't find a place to hunt yeah. even if it's really crowded i used to go out there in september you'll always be able to find a place to hunt um the but there are some walk-in areas that some years are really good it may it matters directionally on what it looks like from a harvest standpoint from a grass standpoint so some years i'll end up hunting three quarters of the time on walk-ins and a quarter on fort pier national grasslands i would say an average year probably like 70 percent the grasslands 30 percent walk-in you know on your list uh, on your on, on the list that uh, Ted Gartner used from you, I'm presuming in some sort of order, maybe random order for all I know. You know, you also talk about Kansas and Nebraska. Now, most both of those places I've hunted pretty heavily, especially Kansas. But you like the quail hunting to a degree in those in in those two states, and that's something I've never had a whole lot of luck with. It's all pheasants for me in both those places. Tell me a little bit about the quail hunting in Kansas in nebraska yeah i'm doing more like i'm i'm not really a big pheasant guy yeah um i've had had shot a lot of pheasants over the over the dogs over the years i grew up hunting wild pheasants when we had them in western new york mm-hmm. with my setters back then but um i'm primarily when i go to south dakota i'm focusing on habitat that's going to be pinnated grouse habitat yeah and there is going to be ancillary pheasants look some days do i shoot three pheasants yeah are there a lot of days where i'm happy to get one absolutely kansas you know, I, I, 
I've hunted quail and pheasants all over the state because most of the time you had the opportunity for both. I was telling yeah. somebody the other day, the state has gotten, um, you know, just like everybody everywhere else the last few years, the drought has impacted it pretty significantly. There's a tremendous amount of hunting pressure now. Yeah. There always has been. It's even greater now. And so I was telling somebody that if you look, I remember back in 2004, the last bird I needed to get on my list for my book was a lesser prairie chicken. And I walked around for like three or four days, didn't find anything, didn't even see any sign. Mm. But even then the dogs would go on point and you know, there might be a covey of quail, there could be bob whites or blues, it could be a pheasant or two. So at least as you're trudging around, you know, maybe once every few hours you got an opportunity to see game. You know, Joe, you, that yeah, uh, abs- that I was got, pretty nice. I I understand completely, and I love it. And I I just had a hunt like that where we had uh, we had quails coming down to water. Not quail. We had chuckers coming down to water. We had quail in in the creek bottom, and then right next to it, we had a pheasant or two. So so, how do you load a gun for that? Oh, I just, you know, <laughs> you know I, I somebody told me this a long time ago, and I thought, wow, that makes sense. You know, I was a I shot competitively a fair bit with a shotgun, and so I um, I used to always try to fool around with loads a lot. And somebody's yeah. like, you know, you're not playing touch football. So <laughs> in from in in September and October, I only have one load in my gun, and that gun might be a 28, it might be a 20. Um, it's not going to be or a 16. It's not going to be a 12. Yeah. And that's a um, that's a uh, an ounce to an ounce and an eighth of six shot. Yeah. Um, if pheasant opens, I may go with a 20 gauge to an ounce and an eighth of like a Kent tungsten matrix. Cause I think that patterns well, yeah. then in November, um, I have just even not, not this year, the year before I hunted pheasants with a 28 for a little while. I was getting good dog work and everything, but once the wind starts blowing, you're at a disadvantage. So in November, I'm shooting a 12 gauge with an ounce and a quarter of fives and yeah. that's it. Yeah. And then when I'm at a place in my January quail trips, it doesn't matter if it's Kansas because you might see a um, they've changed the the uh, prairie chicken rules. And, and now yeah. you, you can't hunt lessers anymore. And that's yeah. been the case for a while. But um, if you're in an area where you can't shoot a greater and a pheasant, I think the sixes are fine and they work on quail. And frankly, the Texas Panhandle Bobs, where I tend to hunt, that's mostly private land. And the public land hunting in New Mexico and Arizona, I think you're just as well off with a 20 or 28 gauge load of sixes because you can anchor the bird. These birds are pretty tough sometimes. You know. And so yeah. I, I, my load, like if you look at my um, ammo locker, it's it, there's not there's not a lot of variety in there. There's sporting clays loads. There's sixes. There's some fives for some late season stuff, and that's pretty much it. I joked with uh, one of the ammo companies a couple of years ago at the SHOT Show. I said, would you please make a six and a half? Because I yeah. could I could use that until mid-November on almost everything. And I'm like, you yeah, know. A lot of guys swear by sevens, but yeah. they're harder to come by. And yeah. I haven't reloaded since I was younger, and I don't think I'm going to take that up again. So I, I just I walked into a brand-new gun store in this town. Yeah, they're still growing. Um, and I said, you're not going to have what I have. And he says, oh, yeah, I bet I do. And I says, uh, I want some 28-gauge ammo. And he said, I got some. He brings me over. He's got four boxes of eight-and-a-halves. Yeah. What, what was I, the last yeah. time you saw eight and a half? No, I actually have. <laughs> actually, I take it back. I do have a couple of, of uh, flats of those because 
They're a good woodcock load. Oh, my, I bet. Yeah. Dan, Dan Catalano, the old, the, the person that founded Bayview Setters, I probably got them from him. Yeah. He had told me about those. And uh, yeah, they, they were, they're actually were a popular load here back east in that sort of generation of, uh, of woodcock hunters. Well, I believe it. And we're going to talk more about that, among other things. I've also got the Upland Nation puzzler and a prize for you. We're going to talk about where everybody I know, thanks to our survey, is going next year. So this is all cogent. That's Joe Augustine. I'm Scott Linden. This is the Upland Nation podcast. Joe, take a quick break. Don't hang up on me. Put your feet up and and I'll, uh, I'll take care of a little business here and then we'll be back right at you. This part of the program, of course, brought to you by happyjackinc.com, happyjackinc.com. You might save yourself a trip to the vet. I did it again. Sure enough, yesterday, saw a crack on Flick's front left pad. First crack I've seen all season because I like to think I'm doing a good job. Put some pad coat on there. I'll be doing that daily until our next hunt. And then during hunting season, every day he hits the trail, I am putting that on him, keeping his pads supple and flexible and protected learn all about pad coat where you can find it locally chase down a local retailer or buy it direct at happyjackinc.com and where did i notice that crack on the tailgate as i was letting flick out of his rough land kennel that's rough r-u-f-f I think they consulted Flick on the spelling there. Roughlandkennels.com is where you learn all about their accessories, their variety of roto-molded performance dog crates. You know, they perform they they pioneered that whole area. They were the first guys there, and I'll never forget meeting Doug Sangle at a pheasant fest. The first time they came out with all of their roto-molded stuff, from water containers of various sizes to storage containers dog bowls, dog crates, single piece, original roto molded performance dog crate. And as I've mentioned before, one of the favorite uh, features of their crates are you can open the door from either side. It'll swivel to either side. It's got latches on both. Pretty convenient. In fact, I'd say darn convenient. And Joe Augustine, author, athlete, financial wizard, and hunting partner, so to speak. Welcome back to the Upland Nation podcast. Thank you, Scott. You're being far too kind. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I got to tell you, Joe. In a way, you're you're inspiring to me. And and one of those ways is you're you're still competing. What what are you getting ready for these days in the world of athletic competition? Well, there's an, there's an event that's usually held every year in Boston where you get on a Concept 2 ergometer and try to row as fast as you can for 2,000 meters. And so that that race is usually held at um, a field house in Boston in March. And last year they did it virtually. It actually worked out pretty well. I was, was skeptical. And um, this year they're going to be doing it virtually again, but they moved it up to February 13th. So... I think it it helps to kind of get you. I don't motivated is the wrong word, but just to just to shake up your training a little bit to have something to look forward to. I love it, and uh, having spent a few 
thousand meters on a rowing machine of one sort or another you have my sympathy good luck on that uh, keep me Thank posted you. too by the way drop me a note when you finish that if you survive that is um you know you mentioned and and i did too i mentioned your book a couple times uh, and and the book actually had its genesis i i want to say in a, in an early early uh woodcock hunt are you still doing much woodcock hunting not as much as I'd like. I mean, I, I, my two favorite birds to hunt are pinnated grouse and woodcock. And I know that sounds bizarre. Yeah. But the problem, the problem is, is that um, I spent. You used to have some pretty good woodcock hunting around here, the Hudson Valley of New York, and then going up through. You know, it's a couple hours for me to get to Vermont, and then it's a few more hours after that to get into New Hampshire and Maine. And I think they still have a reasonable hunting. But I spent a tremendous amount of time from about 2001 to about 2011 in the Canadian Maritimes. Mm. Part of that, part of it was just a pure love for seeing woodcock hunting that, and I've hunted the Minnesota, um, Wisconsin, big woods. It's just a different experience. I met some wonderful people there and I would go back, but I'm a smaller farm woodlot kind of abandoned farm type of guy and in the new brunswick area reminded me of like some of the hunting i did as a kid so in addition to spending time in newfoundland um hunting uh the ptarmigan when i was looking for those for my book i hunted hungarian partridge in uh upon prince edward island but i would spend two to three weeks a year for 10 years straight up in the canadian maritimes primarily in new brunswick hunting woodcock and i, I missed that but I think that what would happen would be I'd come back from Montana, I'd be scrambling around, get all the stuff I needed to go into Canada, go to Canada, come back from Canada, spend a week at home, and then go out to South Dakota. It got to be too much. And so uh, what I wanted to do was I said, I'm going to spend more time in Montana and fish and hunt, and then I'm gonna, I'll give up the, the woodcock trip up to Canada. Now, this year I'm going to take a little bit of a different – tactic I, i'm going to probably stay out in montana a little bit longer and not come back and go to south dakota i'm going to stay back here in the month of november yeah and see what some of my old woodcock haunts have i i don't know what i'm going to find and so but i've been wanting to do that and uh we used to have pretty good woodcock hunting and property that was accessible um for me by people that owned it even neighbors of mine up here in the Hudson Valley. And I would take like people's sisters out. I took one guy's sister out who was a birder who'd never seen a woodcock. It's kind of hard to see a woodcock if you don't have a dog. And I took her out with the dogs and she saw a bunch of them. And a lot of property that they used to allow dog training on here has changed hands and that yeah, doesn't yeah. happen anymore. So I can't say the birds are gone from here, but I can say that the access I had, and I can still take the dogs out in the spring and they'll point a handful of woodcock, but it used to be a fair bit better. You know, you mentioned something that 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 intrigues me as well. If I was going to be a rough grouse or a woodcock hunter, I would I would like what I think you like. Why don't you describe some of that country just in a little bit more detail for us? If my memory serves me correctly, I think after World War II in New Brunswick, they had a program where people were given uh, plots of land to sure. farm. Yeah, and a lot of that property was probably used for you know, somewhere between 10 and 30 or 40 years, right? So now you're between 1960 and 1990. And then it went to 
reverting farmland. Mm -hmm. And so these are like, these are like the classic, like Lassell Ripley or in the modern era, Brett Smith photos of grouse and woodcock or paintings of grouse and woodcock hunting. That's what I grew up doing. I used to spend a lot of time at a farm that was, that was actually a vineyard and they had a farm, but they had a vineyard on the front part of the farm and the back was, you know, all old abandoned fields. And it was a grouse and woodcock heaven. It was uh, 17 miles from, the town I grew up in. Wow. And uh, so when you when you go to New Brunswick, there, there are pieces of property that you could go in. There are abandoned farms. There might be like 10 acres of popple, maybe five acres of popple. Dogs can go in. It's almost like a popple hedgerow if you think about it. Yeah. And you could go in. Uh, you had pretty good shooting. It's not like the stuff in Wisconsin and, and Minnesota that I've hunted. It's literally endless popple. And if you didn't take a compass bearing mm-hmm. or, a, or a compass bearing and GPS bearing going <laughs> in to make sure your GPS didn't go out, you might get lost uh, for good. I mean, I, I've been up you know, hunting in Maine along some of the rivers where it's big like that too. But most of the stuff I was hunting in New Brunswick were what I would call pocket covers to a little bit yeah. bigger. And it, it just reminded me of a lot of the reverting farmsteads that yeah. one associates with. I'm not a New Englander, but one associates with classic New England. And frankly, if you looked at Western New York where I grew up, you know, during the time I was growing up and there in the seventies and eighties was, there were a lot of, uh, places that looked like that. Oh yeah. I, you know, I'm thinking about all the articles that I've read by other, you know, folks in the forties, thirties, forties, fifties, uh, all, all of those folks are, are writing about, uh, old rock walls and abandoned, uh, orchards and all the things that would, you know, are, to most of us are, are ancient history and, and in fact, probably almost grown over to a great degree. Right. They still exist, but that's the issue. They've, they're grown over. And one of the issues we face here, you know, even this far north, I'm probably at the northern end of it. Because if I go back to where I grew up, uh, that's north and, and east of here, about west of here, rather, about 200 miles, you don't see as much as the multi-flora rose. Mm-hmm. It literally is like going in uh, through, you know, barbed wire fences for a whole day of hunting. And one of the things, if you look to hunt quail, like I used to spend some time on the Delmarva Peninsula hunting woodcock and mm-hmm. quail, mm-hmm. but it's just, it beats the dogs up. I mean, they look like they've been through razor wire. Oh, they and, have. And yeah. I'm just, that to me is not fun hunting. No, we um, have. I, I, I don't want to go through stuff like that and we, end up spending all the time, you know, at a vet. And I, <laughs> I love vets. They've helped me out a, a number of times, but I don't want to spend every day, you know, being a vet tech, what, to taking care of the dog's eyes and everything. It's just not necessary. No, I'll never forget. Uh, out, out West, it's it's not the wild roses as much as it's the Himalayan blackberry. And I'll, Black, I was gonna say, I'll never forget a little, a little pocket-sized Labrador of my buddies. Uh, she was a blonde-colored Labrador, and she comes out of one of those thickets. Both ears are pure red. Um, she, she was, God bless her. She was the hardest working dog I've ever met. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I finally got to write about her. So, Hey, read that story in uh, sporting classics, by the way, everybody. But anyway, um, comes out of that thicket, uh, of course, with a dead quail and, uh, bloody ears. And this is one of the things that, uh, I'm grateful for in the Pacific Northwest. We don't have near as much of that as they do down in say California, where we were that time. Um, Joe, uh, Joe Augustine, author, 
friend. Uh, the, the name of his book again, look for it. It's still available on Amazon. I think once in a while, um, it's called feathered tales, a bird hunters, grand slam odyssey. Uh, what came first, the grand slam odyssey or the book idea? Mm, I think they probably came at the same time. Uh I I hadn't really spent a lot of time thinking about it, but I, you know, when I started to get some more flexibility with my time about 2001, um, I, uh, I said, you know, this is fun going around. I had traveled a lot for work up until that point, but it was, uh, I, I think I took a trip in 98 out to visit for Christmas. Uh, my wife and I went to visit her brother who was living in Fort Collins and we had, uh, I had seen a guy that advertised, you know, you got a room and a trailer and he had some land and I took my little dog out there a couple days early and hunted, um, pheasants in, in Nebraska by Ogallala and uh, actually saw a bunch of prairie chickens never got a shot at them they were in season I think at the time but I was like wow this this is pretty interesting so that kind of started seeing some different birds than just the local grouse and woodcock around here and I don't I can't honestly say what I read or what gave me the idea to do it. I think maybe it could have been, like I tell people, like there's a lot of days in March where it's dreary and cold and you can't hunt and you can't fish and your mind just takes you places. Oh, and yeah. that might have that might have been one of those those things. But I know I, I, the one thing that I did know was is that the stuff that I had seen, and once again, I'm not an authority on anything, didn't sort of document everything. And I'm like, well, you know, it, it certainly doesn't, I can't find anything on it. So maybe I'll give it a shot and try to do this. Well, and well, so, yeah, when you say document, I mean, tell me what you mean and what, what that finally manifested itself as. I mean, I'm a list guy. So yeah, I'm like, okay, yeah. I would like to see like a list of like what these birds are and where the person hunted them. Yeah. I mean, and, and I just said, well, it didn't seem to be out there. So, I mean, there were stories. I'm a huge Charlie Waterman fan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I've got every single thing he's written. I, in my mind, he's like the gold standard. Yeah. And he touched on a lot of this stuff, but it was all more a series of like essays. And, and I thought that, um, you know, it was just a little bit of a different take maybe on that. Let me, let me just touch on a few things. Some, some of the high, the, what I'll call some of the, the top five places you like for public ground bird hunting, Southern Arizona for the quails out there. And, and, uh, as this is being recorded, I hope to be there doing that Northern Michigan, the upper peninsula for rough, rough, you know, that article is going to stop there. That yeah. is, I, I've never been to the, I've never been to the UP. Oh, I've, I've hunted, I've hunted. Michigan's one of the few states that have never bought a hunting license in. Oh, wow. I used to spend a lot of time in Phillips, Wisconsin, hunting land similar. But that reference in that article oh, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. To, was to Mark. Yeah, Peterson, I see Mark's who, name now. Yeah, uh, yeah. Who uh, I think I, I I tip my hat in a huge way to how he's done it. He's systematically looked at. I've looked at some of his stuff online, mm. but his 
the way he looks at stuff and the way I look at stuff is very similar. So you can kind of look at that if you're interested in even one of his species and learn something. I think he's done a fantastic job. I've never met him, yeah. spoke with him or anything, but I think he's done a terrific job. I, I agree. And, uh, and we share bylines in the same magazines once in a while. And uh, I've really enjoyed his work. What else, what are the other places that you would tell people to go? And we're going to touch on the list of where they do plan to go. But what, if you had to narrow it down what are the other places on your list that you think somebody like you know, who really loves bird hunting and bird dogs should go i mean there's a lot of stuff in idaho if yeah. you're willing to walk it's only limited by the amount you're willing to walk yeah. i mean, i like it there i mean another place that has a lot of blm land too that i have hunted is uh, is wyoming mm-hmm. um, but all those places out west are getting more and more and more pressure and so I think that um, doesn't mean that you can't. I mean, I have friends out there. I have a friend that lives not too far from you in Oregon. He's telling me he's going up into these mountain lakes to fish, and he'll see a tremendous amount of activity. It could be mountain biking activity. It could yeah. be any other type of recreational use activity. But I think that the western states, you know, Nevada is a place with a lot of public land. I used to, as a matter of fact, I think it's a while now, but the picture on the cover of my book was taken outside of Winnemucca, Nevada. Um, that that whole Great Basin area has a tremendous amount of public land, but it's big area. It's removed to a large degree from the large eastern population centers because mm-hmm. right, it's, it's hard enough. And I understand. I've been incredibly fortunate in terms of having like an understanding wife, uh, uh, ability, a business to be able to to be gone for a while. Um, you know, I've been kind of working remotely for 20 some years. I have an office in Manhattan and everything, and I'm there during the off season a lot. But the the ability to for the average guy on the east coast to tell you know his spouse hey i'm going to go off to winnemucca it's going to take three days driving to get there and you're going to hunt a, hunt a day and then drive three days back it's a logistical i don't want to say impossibility but it's tough well yeah for, it, it, no and and speaking of that i was there a week and a half ago um everybody else is doing it now too so you, right. your travel plans now and by the way um nevada has chuckers and it has california quail and and if you want to if you're so inclined it's got some grouse in the in the in the hills and the trees as well of all sorts but there's also rattlesnakes there's also coyotes there's also mountain lions and by the way there's also sasquatch so why don't you all stay stay where you are <laughs> and joe and i will meet in winnemucca and everything will be copacetic no but the other thing that we're learning and you alluded to it a couple times and here is part of my strategy now and and everybody else ought to probably consider it as well you're you're going to a place you don't know and that's my goal in life is to keep going to places i don't know plan on a day or two to get skunked uh explore all those places plan on driving farther plan on walking farther and if you do those things at some point you're going to find a place that stays on your list but the rest of the time you're going to check off those little lines and you're not going to go there again have you had that experience yourself yes um i think some of the some of the experiences i have i'm not going to name the place yeah the dogs found 26 coveys of birds in four days and i'd be hard pressed to go back there um it was just an overall like feeling of not necessarily being welcome. And it, I had no confrontations. I had no issues with anybody, but it was just a, a sense that I got. Yeah. And I've always recognized wherever I hunt, I'm a guest. Um, it's important to be a good guest. 
but I also, you know, I'm paying for a license. I've driven out there and, and I, I have certain, um, you know, uh, I guess you, you have a, it's a privilege to yeah. right? So you yeah, have certain you privileges that you pay for. You respect the rules and, and you just sort of, uh, go about your business. And in, in 99% of the places I've been, that's been completely fine. I made a lot of good friends. I look forward to seeing people year after year, but so, you know, there, there've been a few places where I'm like, you know what? I, I don't need to be there again. But I think your point, the main point about going to these new places is I always say that I want to know, first of all, I want to have my, uh, um, my sort of bad day stuff covered. I want to know where somebody is that I could take a dog to if it got sick. I need to know where I can go if I get sick and I want to know where I can bring my truck if it gets sick. If the dogs are good, I'm good, and my truck's good, I've had a good day. And so I've had all of those situations happen multiple times in all the years of traveling on the road. So I always say to people, you know, if you can get home safe, um, that's not a cliche. I mean, that's just really all that matters at the end of the day with you and your dogs. Amen. I, so. I, I, I joke about it, but at the end of every day, if nothing else, I'll turn to everybody else and I'll say, Hey, nobody got shot. And the one other thing I did is I think it actually makes sense to, uh, proactively stop in a vet before you need it. Oh, introduce yourself. Um, I have, I carry with me, this is a good thing for the list. I carry with me two things, a veterinary health certificate that was signed before I go on the road and a certificate of vaccination. That's also signed for the vet for each dog. Mm -hmm. Cause you show up at a place when you have a problem, then they're going to be thinking like, you know, we, it's especially nowadays with COVID, it's just harder to get into places mm -hmm. and uh, to let them see a dog, even if your dog's injured, because these people are at capacity as well. And so what I've always tried to do, I have a folder for each dog and I go in and I'm able to usually uh, through being prepared and oftentimes having stopped before or now the places I go to, generally speaking, I'm, I'm seeing them you know, at some point during the hunting season, hopefully it's just to stop off and say hello. Um, but I don't think you can ever have too good of a relationship with a veterinary practice. Oh, when you yeah. go into an E, you go into an ER, they're going to take you. That's not always the case at these vets because they, they don't have the staff that these big hospitals have. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's oftentimes it's a sole proprietor. So you want to be able to, uh, you want to be able to make, uh, at least let that person know who you are when you call them on the phone when you need something yeah i was just uh, uh, there was a story related to me not 72 hours ago my dog had this problem got in a fight with a bad dog we dragged him to the uh, vet they said we can't see him try the emergency vet they said yeah we can work you in they sat there for seven hours before they they were the worst left you know so there was yeah. you know it's all it's a triage all day every yeah. day in all those places and if you don't even know where to start and i just got that email not a week ago uh, scott is there any place i can go to get a list of all the emergency veterinarians across the country and i said no just do your own legwork figure it out and put them on your speed dial yeah um I'm, I'm loving this we're going to do it next time we do it maybe it'll be uh while we're both knee deep in um a stream near lewistown that we won't name yet um but before we go joe augustine author passionate hunter 
if you had to narrow it down to a couple strategies or tactics, we're in the field, we're walking around, put, a, put yourself back in the field with us on that first day there, we were walking around in places we didn't know. What kind of strategy and tactics might you employ? Um, I, I look at it a little bit maybe differently. I don't think about, I mean, maybe this is a strategy. Yeah. From all the years of, of hunting, like that place that we went, yeah. I had never been there before. And I was actually coming back from fishing a river that was a ways from Lewistown. And I just prior to um, another situation with a pheasant, um, I, had, I was driving up that highway and I'm like, that looks pretty good. And I, um, I looked at my... Uh, onyx on my phone and i'm like wow that's a walking area so i go up to the major highway to turn around and wham i hit a pheasant it knocks the radar plate off the front of my truck so i'm on the side of the highway um taking zip ties putting the radar piece it looks like a deck of cards on the front of these new vehicles now they have a i guess it's a crash detection thing on the toyotas and so put it back on it's it's stayed on now for several months my mechanic said hey i can't do any better so i'm good with that zip ties are your friend um and so i came back to the hotel i'm like oh that, that looks pretty interesting it looked both one side of the road was, I think, block management. The other side, which we looked at, but it was too hot to hunt when you were with me, was looked even better, and it was a public land. So yeah. I um, I had gone back, I don't know, a week later with one of my bigger running dogs, and I put him down, and after an hour, I was like, okay, this is, this, this is what I thought it was. And so um, I just looked at the, in that case, um, it was just a nice alfalfa field bordering a cut wheat field. And to me, nothing says early season sharp tails like seeing that site. The other side of the road looked just as good, but I sent that same big running dog a week or two later through there. We didn't even see anything. We didn't see roosts. We didn't see uh, any, we didn't see any birds. So, but I wouldn't give up on that place. I'm a big believer if there's, the type of cover that you know, and, you, and the only way you learn this is by going out and hunting. It's really hard. I can describe like a popple patch to somebody for woodcock, but until they go out and kind of do it themselves, it's really hard to like book learn this stuff, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, out west, I'm just looking for stuff. And sometimes you get surprised. I mean, I found a lot more sharp tails over the years in sage country that would you would expect to hunt sage grouse or huns in then I would have guessed. I don't know what they're eating. Uh, a lot of hoppers early when I'm out there, obviously, but it's not, they don't know the variety of food, at least it doesn't seem to me, but they seem to like it out there. I think the one message that I would give if somebody, the hardest thing to do now, I'm 57. When I was younger starting this, this wasn't as hard. The hardest thing in upland hunting now, in my opinion, is to be an a, a a normal person. I consider myself a normal person. I have a, I have a business. Uh, I've always, you know, wor- I worked for people for a long time. In the last 20 years, I've had, I had two businesses for a while. Now I have one business, and you know, it's to get your dog trained. Yeah. So if I, if I could come up here, you know, on the like a Thursday night, work from up here, get some training in on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday on wild birds, that would be great. I can't do that up here anymore. So the average person, I think the hardest thing for them to do is not take a week's vacation, 
uh, everybody generally gets vacation. It's to actually get their dog trained. The only way the dog tra- gets trained is on reps of birds. Yeah. So I think that what you have to do is you have to figure out, okay, what's going to work for my life? And what are the closest wild birds or the wild birds that I want to hunt the most that I can practically get to? And you have to learn as much as you can about that area and if that means reading the local newspaper, if that means going out there in the summer or going out there at, in sometime in the off season and just looking around, maybe if it's legal running your dog um, in an area to see what there is, is just learning an area like the back of your hand. So this way, you know where the vet is, you know where the hospital is, you know where the grocery store is, you know where you're going to eat, you know where you're going to stay, and you can focus all your efforts on finding birds. And then it's just literally a matter of just putting the miles on with your boots and with your truck and so that would be the the one message i have a friend he's the most one of, i've learned a tremendous i've been really fortunate to learn a lot of stuff from guys like al and a number of other people as a matter of fact one of the things i put i do almost 100 percent for like the last close to 20 years diy hunting mm-hmm. but i learned a lot from guys early on and i i don't think it's a bad thing to hire a guide for a few days one of the most experienced guys that i know that i um, had tarpon fished with for 25 years he's retired now and we we're talking the other day and yesterday as a matter of fact and he's at a new place now he'd never been there before he likes to explore he bird hunts with me too fairly regularly and uh he was frustrated yesterday. And I said, look, you know more about this than anybody I know. You got to give it some time. And we came, you know, as we talked, he's like, oh, I'm going to spend a month here figuring it out. I mean, that's the kind of thing that most people can't do unless they're retired, but you can spend a week. And over time, you can, if you will pick up one or two little things from each week you spend after five years, you have a pretty good set of knowledge of the area. And I don't think going forward that, there's going to be any new upland place on the horizon. Like Ohio, Ohio, for instance, or where I grew up. Like yeah. I look at where I grew up, Western New York. Good point. Scoot, scoot into Pennsylvania and Ohio. Those areas used to have excellent pheasant hunting. Those areas are not going to be resurrecting great pheasant hunting. That ain't going to happen. So you have to focus on the areas, and that's not good for pressure or guys like, you know, with it, like me that have been going there for years, but that's just a fact of life, and that's not new knowledge to anybody you have to focus on where you can get into birds and then learn those areas it and i i think it's just it's you have to like doing it it's like in athletics if you see to me i like to train more than i like to compete so if you don't like that aspect of like with dogs right they're they're, Mm -hmm. they're with you 365 days a year i like being around dogs one of my favorite things to do every day is when after I walk them and feed them is I, if I start to do my core exercises before I really work out, they're all kind of coming around me, batting me on the head. And I have fun <laughs> with it. I, I like that part. Oh, that's and, why. This is why we get along so well, Joe. You, and so you, to yeah. me, you, you, you have to think, like if you go to a place and you don't find any birds, but maybe you find a great like chili cheeseburger. I mean, you have to like all that stuff. And so I think it caters to different types of people. Some people want to go and shoot 50 yeah. quail. Yeah. And, you know, they can go to a plantation in Georgia and do that. There's nothing wrong with that. We're all pulling on the same rope yeah. if we're hunting. Uh, it's just, you know, different strokes for for different folks on stuff like I, that. So I, I, I don't, agree. Uh, 
Joe. But the wild bird thing, I think, requires a lot of focus. You know, and and I've learned a lot, particularly this year, and it actually made a few bucks writing about it recently. But I've learned a lot from big game hunters because they're like uh, you and me and many other folks who are listening. And that is, they love all of those things you just talked about. It's the entire process, not just the shooting birds on any given day. And those guys live it all the time they're they're perpetually scouting and i th- i look at the wild sheep hunters that we run into all the time in in some parts of chucker country where i go those guys you know there will be a dozen sheep hunters one guy's got a tag but they've all been scouting for him all year and that's the kind of stuff that i enjoy as well and i think most people who are listening would agree it's it's all about the uh, what what we used to call in the music business woodshedding, practicing, uh, paying your dues, whatever you want to describe it as. That's exactly right. We'll do more of it in coming seasons. Joe Augustine, author, athlete, businessman, good luck on your upcoming competition. If you are looking for the book, you'll look hard for it, uh, but you can probably find a copy on Amazon, Feathered tales a bird hunter's grand slam odyssey by joe augustine my sort of hunting buddy and good friend joe thanks so much for being a part of the upland nation podcast thanks a lot scott i appreciate you having me on and uh best of luck in uh, 2022 with all your endeavors i'll need it and so will the rest of us thanks joe bye-bye bye-bye Hey, the rest of you stick around. We've got a lot more to talk about, including where you're going and how many of you are going there, which might influence where you're going now that I think about it. So capping off uh, our discussion with Joe on that topic, as well as a new puzzler and a question and a shot at that real bird bumper. It's all coming up on the Upland Nation podcast. We're brought to you by Dr. Tim's Natural Performance Dog Food. Uh, Take a look at their website because ingredients are the key, you know, as they say. It's not what you put in, it's the quality of the stuff you put into a dog food if you want your dog to work at his peak all season. Protein, absolutely critical. What kind of proteins and where they come from, absolutely critical same for fats find out where dr tim hunt put gets all of his ingredients and why he puts them into his various formulations hey get free delivery and 30 percent off your first order just use the code upland nation at d r t i m s dot com and if you're shopping for shotguns you might want to take a look at midvalleyclays.com yeah it's tough to find them these days Uh, so what do you need you need a dealer who has a relationship with the manufacturer and browning and midvalleyclays.com are like this i'm crossing my two fingers in front of you right now they are working together every day on sourcing and making available to new shotgun buyers some of their best models some of the stuff you can't find anywhere else from the satori double gun now in the feather model very lightweight to auto loaders of various applications and price points in several colors and camo configurations browning also has the pump game covered so if you are looking to start somebody on their shooting career if you're looking to upgrade 
Call Dave Fiedler at midvalleyclays.com. Tell them what you're looking for, and they may be able to find it for you. Yeah, they can take care of delivery. They can hand it over the counter to you. They can ship it to you. Midvalleyclays.com. Time for the Upland Nation Puzzler and uh, a challenge, uh, but not too much of a challenge for you. I don't like it to make it too hard. And the prize at the end of January to one of the correct answers who messaged me on Facebook, any of the Facebook pages, I check them all every day, is a very rare signature series real bird bumper that I designed a while back. We got a few left and I'm going to give one away from my own personal stash. Here's the question. Among our friends here in the bird hunting world, bird hunting world, what are the three most popular dog breeds? Now, what? just name one of the three most popular dog breeds. How's that? Dig around, you'll probably figure it out. What are one of the three most popular dog breeds? Good luck on that. And uh, speaking of you, and stuff like that from the upland nation index survey that i do every year and thank you all for participating those of you who did um i ask a couple questions every year uh, how um you know where are you going to go and how many of you are going to go so the first question in a normal season hopefully we have one of those sometime soon do you hunt outside your home state and believe it or not more than ever 57% of you say you're going to go somewhere else in the upcoming season. See you there. <laughs> and as I said earlier, you know, here are the places that most of us are going to go. And maybe some of you would rather go somewhere else after you hear this. Highest on the list, of course, with almost 27% of us going to South Dakota. Second highest, Kansas, 22%. Third highest, Montana. Well, I'd go after hearing what Joe has to say. Yeah, heck yeah. Those are the top three among all the folks who've taken our survey. And that survey has been around for about 11 years, so it's kind of reliable. There are a lot of people who will go somewhere else as well, and that's pretty cool. I understand that, but those are the top three. And if you're going there, take some of Joe's advice and plan ahead. Start doing your homework, that sort of thing. And like I said... Maybe I'll see you there. This part of the show brought to you by FindBirdHuntingSpots.com. We got new material every week. This week I profile yet another dog I hunted with on the television show. I think you're um, you're going to be inspired by this one. Baron is an incredible wire hair that's got it all together and young enough to um, see a bright future as well incredible hunting dog you'll learn more about him and possibly be inspired to work with your own dog just a little bit more yeah it's about time to say goodbye so thank you for listening thank you joe augustine for being my guest i'll see you again in central montana if you want to talk with us here at the Upland Nation podcast, go to any of the Facebook pages, Wing Shooting USA, Upland Nation, or even my own Scott Linden page. I'm talking every day there. So uh, thank you all. 
or your correspondence. And thank you if you left a rating or a review at any of your podcast sources. That really does help. It is how we grow around here one listener at a time. Please spread the word. I'll leave you with this from Andy Rooney. If you're of a certain age, you know Andy Rooney was a commenter on 60 Minutes every Sunday night. The guy is a genius. And this just proves it. He says, the average dog is a nicer person than the average person. Isn't that the truth? Can I get an amen from everybody out there? I'm Scott Linden. Thanks again for listening. Until we talk again here, hopefully I'll see you in the field.